Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today's podcast is about mental health and the crushing stress and depression that professionals sometimes experience that can induce suicidal ideations, suicide attempts, suicide itself, the pain and anguish caused to family and others, and how one can find relief and hope instead of pain, suffering, and tragedy. My guests today are Reverend Bob Flanagan, who has written, spoken, and preached about his own mental health issues, and Meredith Atwood, a former lawyer and now author and life coach who is candid about her suicide attempt, sobriety after drug and alcohol addiction, and finding her way back through triathlons and weightlifting, and Elizabeth Kelly, a lawyer who specializes in representing defendants with mental disabilities all over the country and in attorney wellness so that they don't burn out and cause harm to themselves, their families, and their clients. A warning, this is a very difficult conversation in which we all talk about our personal relationships with depression and suicide, a much needed discussion in these times of community and personal trauma. So coming up, a brave talk about suicide on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Uh, we have a very special uh, show for you um, and uh, a difficult one in some ways because uh, everybody on our program today has um, either suffered some mental uh, health issues, myself included, or is involved in helping people with mental health issues and um, specifically some uh, suicide issues or suicidal ideations. So I'm hoping that uh, we can still... Um, Laugh about some of it and some of our stories, and um, and and find some of the the commonality and the humor in it. But it's a very serious business, and uh, that's why I asked uh, all these special people uh, to be with us. So we have uh, my uh, my my good friend Meredith Atwood with us tonight uh, today, and I've been on her podcast a couple of times, same twenty four hours. And uh, Bob Flanagan, um, he's a uh, fellow Connecticut person. And he's an Episcopal priest, and um, we know each other through the yoga world, actually. And Elizabeth Kelly, who is an attorney uh, based in Spokane, and uh, she's edited books and is an expert in, um, in the uh, mental health issues in the law and uh, helps people all around the country who have those issues in their cases. So uh, Meredith, Bob, Elizabeth, uh, welcome to White Collar Week. It's good to see you all. Hi. Thanks, Jeff. Hey. Good morning. Hey. So, yeah. uh, so why don't we start with just going around each person giving maybe five minutes on your background, just and um, and then what we can do is um, get into conversation, and start start talking about this, and tell some stories. So, um, Bob, why don't we start with you? Um, since uh, my conversation with you is what kind of lifted off the idea of having this podcast today. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You know, um, I became a priest after. Uh, a career in financial services um, in Greenwich, and um, I've been a priest now for almost 20 years. And 
one of the things that I find most interesting is um, we are as priests. There's a even today in in a in a world that is kind of lowered expectations around all sorts of people, but lowered expectations um, about religion. Even today, where you know, priests are are uh, ex- any of the clergy are expected to have uh, you know have their shit together. You know, to be honest, I mean that 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 we're supposed to have our mental health all squared off and and uh you know that that's kind of like the, the the little dark secret uh you know is that uh, clergy clergy have mental health problems too and so my you know what my uh goal here and one of the reasons why i wrote my book and why i advocate so much for things like uh, suicide prevention is because of my own journey but also you know, to, to pull back uh, that curtain, like the Wizard of Oz and, and uh, Dorothy and, and the Toto pulling back the curtain, you know, to see, see what's really happening. Thanks, Bob. Um, and Bob um, has written a book. We'll give you plenty of time to talk about it. You all have books, actually. That's fantastic. And, and I push your books. I actually have Bob's and Meredith's in my little stack over here. Yeah. Um, but we'll give you an opportunity to be able to uh, talk about it. So Meredith, why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll get to Elizabeth. Yes. Hi, I'm Meredith Atwood. Um, I'm, as Jeff mentioned, the host of the Same 24 Hours podcast. Um, my background, I'm a recovering attorney and that comes out of being a recovering people pleaser <laughs> because I became an attorney to make everyone proud and happy and it just was not my heart's desire. And I realized a lot of what I was doing was not my heart's desire. And so over the course of the last decade, I've really learned to kind of claim my own space in the world and to make myself happy instead of trying to make everyone else happy. But with regard to suicide, I actually had a suicide attempt when I was 20 years old. And um, this was before law school. And I was a heavy drinker. I'm five years sober now. And it was just 20 years of battling um, the idea that I didn't want that life and just distinguishing that from the fact that it's not about not wanting to live, but about not wanting to live as I was. And that's the conclusion I've, I've come to over these years that we're just, a lot of us are in a lot of pain and we're suffering and it's trying to figure out how to find a way out of that. And so that's, that's sort of what I've done with my mission is trying to share my story in hopes that I can encourage other people to, to keep going. Thanks, Meredith. Uh, Elizabeth, would you like to introduce yourself? I would, but before I start, Jeff, what do I have to do in order for my two books to be on the bookshelf behind you? All you have to do is send me a book, Elizabeth, and and and, and you're right there. This is this is my this is my little pile of guests I've had. So it's 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 kind of a subliminal advertising for uh, for people. Good to know. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. As Jeff said earlier, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm based in Spokane, Washington, and I have a nationwide practice specializing in representing people with mental disabilities. I'm very deliberate about my word choice. Mental disabilities means not only people with mental illnesses like bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, major depression, but it also means intellectual and developmental disabilities like fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and autism spectrum disorders. 
The question that everyone asks criminal defense lawyers is, how can you defend those people? And what I say in terms of my clients is that you need to re remember that the culpability, the involvement of people with mental disabilities is very, very different from that of other people charged with crimes. Because people with mental disabilities may not understand the nature of what they did. They may be powerless to control themselves, or they may be conned by their so-called friends into criminal involvement. So that's why I do what I do. And over the years, I've become involved with issues of wellness, and that has spread into the area of attorney wellness. And as Meredith mentioned earlier, the legal profession is very, very stressful. Among other things, we literally have clients' lives, livelihoods, and liberty in our hands. And we take that very seriously. And the burnout can be high. And unfortunately, some attorneys take advantage of coping me mechanisms or what they think are coping mechanisms that turn out to be profoundly destructive. And suicide, sadly to say, touches people who are accused with, with crimes, but it also touches people in the legal profession. And uh, I'm glad that Jeff has taken the opportunity to shine the spotlight on this very, very serious issue. Um, uh, thank you all. I, I don't know if it's uh, kismet or what that's brought us all together, but um, I agree with um, with Bob about the, the the dirty little secret part. And I'm 18 years sober now, and it was really easy to talk about my my drug and alcohol addiction early in my in my sobriety. And, um, that was the that was the milieu I was in. That was um, but getting down to the bottom of it and kind of what, what caused it. And I saw myself being able to talk about my drug and alcohol addiction. Then I was able to talk about my, uh, my legal problems and my incarceration story. And last became the mental illness part of it and how I was self-medicating or what I was doing to myself in order to, um, in order to check out, as it were. And um, that included a suicide attempt uh, um, a little over 18 years ago. But all of a sudden, I'm talking about this with everybody. I was talking about it with Bob. I was talking about it as Elizabeth. Elizabeth asked me to um, submit a chapter for a book that she's, uh, she's editing for the American Bar Association. And um, I, was, I was writing it, or I was actually rewriting it, because it's a chapter from a, a, a book that I was writing. And I found myself getting upset. I found myself getting more involved in that story again that, than I would have chosen to otherwise. So I'm hoping what we can do is um, all talk about um, kind of the edge, where, where, where the tipping point was, um, either for each of us or people that we know, or people we've helped. And... And what, what led us to make hopefully some, some 
better choices other than going over the edge. So, so Bob, why don't we start with you? Because your book is, is very, very, um, uh, um, it's very uh, giving. You put your stuff right out there. And I admire that. So uh, maybe you just want to kind of talk about um, your mental health issues. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, just to just to give you one one little story again about you know this kind of expectations clergy have. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, while I've been a priest, I've also been a coach, a rowing coach, uh, for oh, about ten years, to call it. And uh, at one point, I was uh, with with some rowers uh, that knew me uh, uh, really well. Uh, we were away at a at a regatta uh, and a race and. Uh, I needed something quick, and, and my bag was in the uh, cab of the truck. And I went to open it, and it was it was locked. And uh, you know, as I just it just came out, right? I said, "Fuck!" Um, and in that moment, I didn't know that two of my uh, two of my uh, rowers were right right behind me, and they said, "You can't say that. You're a priest." And there's that expectation that. Um, that that is given to us um in in that sense of of being being clergy or being a, a priest that that is layered into all of this that there's an expectation about how and who we're supposed to be and you know beyond that one of those things is we are not supposed to have really not especially not supposed to have mental health issues right we're supposed to be well-adjusted and um, that all things are solved because we spend our lives in a close relationship with God. And I, I will tell you that that's, that's an unfair uh, 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 expectation that people put on us and, uh, and, and, and not real and not, not based in reality because, because uh, all, all clergy are, are humans too. So for me, my uh, a challenge of suicidal ideation came in my first year of seminary. I had moved from the New York City area to Virginia, uh, was attending um, a seminary. My kids uh, at the time were in grade school. They had left their school, moved um, moved to uh, the new school. That that it was a big big challenge for them. My wife uh, had just been uh, finishing up her education degree and was beginning to teach, and so all of this kind of uh, enormous changes in our lives. And, and for me, I, I, it was caught up in this question of, you know, am, I, am I worthy to do this? You know, can, I, um, uh, uh, can, I, can I meet the, meet the objectives and, and expectations of, of everybody involved, including uh, the bishop who was uh, going to ordain me after seminary? And, and some of that, it was just, Fear that I layered into my life and and un un unreal un unnecessary fear, but real fear in that um, the, the people were there to support me and weren't you know it wasn't a measure of me um, trying to to um, live up to to their their expectations. I was, but for me internally that that was that was my you know my fear, and so that grew and grew to a point and to a day and and around you know this time uh in the year 2000 uh, in October 2000 where where I was overwhelmed with this sense of just of, of stopping um the the 
the pain and anxiety that had developed in me. And um, the, the only solution at that moment was um, to end my life. The only thing I could think about was to end my life. And, and, uh, and, and so that brought me to that place. Um, Meredith, I know that um, you, uh, you had a suicide attempt. Um, is, is that something that um, you found you could talk about um, at the time? Did it take you a while to tease it out? And, and what were the events that led up to it? I did not talk about it for a really long time. And it goes to the expectations that I placed on myself from my family. Like if they weren't proud of me, if I got a B they're not going to be really thrilled about me talking about killing myself, you know? So I did not, I carried that through and continued the shame for a very long time. Um, I wrote a post on my blog. That's kind of how I outed myself about the struggle. And it was on the heels of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. And those two um, very public suicides just floored me. One, because we watched, um, Anthony Bourdain's show all the time. Yeah. And it, it just was a very public moment. And I thought I can, I can tell my side, I can tell why I'm here and I can tell how I'm grateful to be here. And so that's when, that's when I first was really public about it. And that was about two years before my book. Mm-hmm. Um, what led up to it? And I can connect the dots now. I couldn't at the time I was an Olympic Um, style weightlifter in high school, a pretty successful one. I quit that when I started college and I never connected the um, kind of the grief of losing my athleticism, this thing I did every day for two to three hours. And I didn't pick up a new athletic hobby. Um, Instead, I picked up drinking. (laughs) I picked up smoking um, and just not doing anything. And so for me, the connection between mental health and Physical movement Mm -hmm. is very big. And also food. Um, It's very tied for me. So if I'm treating my body like a trash can and I'm eating poorly and I'm not exercising, my mental health suffers. It is a direct correlation for me. And I know that may not be the case for everyone. And it's certainly not just, oh, that's solved. But the degree which my life has improved since starting movement again about 10 years ago and waking up every day and knowing I'm going to move. That has been the thing that keeps me going. It really is, was important for me. Um, so the things that led up to it was just darkness. It was like a lack of movement. It was a lot of sugar. It was a lot of alcohol. It was mixed with prescription drugs. And it was just the tipping point was I can't live this way anymore. And, and that's, and so I thought I'd, I'd check out and, um, it didn't work. My husband, then boyfriend, the man still married me. Um, he was there and, and, you know, got me help. And, and I spent three days in a, um, recovery unit, which was very interesting because they just let me out and no one followed up. (laughs) Like, Hey, we just want to check on you five days, like nothing. They just... Yeah, let me out. And that was the end of it, you know? And, and so the, I kind of just buried it, you know, because no one checked on me. My parents and my family were not real thrilled about it. Obviously mm-hmm. I won't go as far to say they're ashamed, but it wasn't like I was running down the street and being like, Hey, 
your perfect daughter, you know, I'm putting air quotes up, um, all appearances or that I had everything together. Mm-hmm. And so I just didn't talk about it for 15 years. And, and then I did. And the response I received speaking out about it was just like you would expect. It was great. It was supportive. It was thank you for sharing this because like Bob says, everyone is struggling, not everyone, but a, a large percentage of people struggle. And this idea that we don't struggle because we're a priest or we're, we're a lawyer or we've got our act together um, is, is not true. And I think part of what made me really share it was because the thoughts came back again. They came back again and I wasn't, you know, by all intents and purposes, I had everything. I had the job. I had the 2.5 kids in the suburbs. I had my Louis Vuitton purse sitting in my SUV and I dreamed of driving myself into a tree every day coming home from work. I mean, it could have been the practice of law. (laughs) I did get out of that for a reason. But when I felt that come back, I thought, oh gosh, I have to, I have to really do something about it. And that's when I chose to, you know, quit drinking. And that really made a huge difference. But yeah. It's real. And um, we'll come back. To, I'll come back to that in a second. And Elizabeth, so you've been driven to do this work. I mean, this, this can't be the easiest career path for anybody to take on uh, the, the issues and problems of a, um, a very difficult constituency. I imagine you have to get much more emotionally involved than lawyers who are representing other types of clients. Whoop, you're on on mute. We've been Zooming for seven months now. I should should know this. Um, In in any event, yes and no. Um, No attorney should become too emotionally involved in a case. That's that's my belief. On the other hand, the minute you stop caring, in my opinion, is the moment you should leave. So there's a very, very delicate balance to strike. That being said, I'm not really driven to do this kind of work, but rather I'm, I'm inspired because there's a need. And there's, there's a need for um, attorneys who not only are understanding, but also know about mental disabilities and know its influence on, on the client and their involvement and the resources he or she may need as they're navigating through the system. You mentioned earlier writing a chapter for the book that I'm editing. Uh, another woman by the name of Francesca Flood and I are editing a book to be published by the American Bar Association on the phenomena of suicide within the legal system. And we're focusing not only on litigants who may attempt or follow through with suicide, but also we're going to discuss the topic of attorney wellness. And in terms of the research and the interviews we've conducted of attorneys who had clients 
uh, attempt to suicide or follow through with it to a person. Every attorney feels so rotten when it happens. There's, there's no other way to express it. And part of the problem is, if you will, no one ever warns us that this is going to happen if we're attorneys. And when it does, sometimes we've seen the handwriting on the wall, but we never think it'll go that far, or we're completely taken by surprise. And the reactions by other people in the system are, uh, well, they, they spread the gamut. For instance, there's this one author in our book who talks about how she went to the courtroom one morning uh, for her client's hearing, and no one in the jail, no one in the prosecutor's office bothered to tell her or her client's family, who, by the way, was sitting in the courtroom, that the client had suicided. So she's standing in the well of the courtroom waiting for her client who is in custody to be brought up and the client doesn't materialize. And then the prosecutor with a smirk on his face says that the case can be dismissed because the client has suicided. And you can imagine the reaction on the part of the defense attorney. And me, even more absurdly, you can imagine the, the reaction on the part of, of the client's family who's sitting in the courtroom. That's one example. On, on the other hand, some attorneys feel that after it happens, there's just, there's just no place to go, like, like Meredith um, discussed earlier, we as uh, attorneys tend to internalize a lot and and we're we're very sensitive to the fact that people judge us not only by by how we act, but by the stiff upper lip that, that we tend to keep. So sometimes for for months and years, uh, attorneys keep keep this guilt, if you will, Welled up inside them, and so thankfully, more and more, the legal profession is grappling with the concept of wellness and telling people that you need to address your issues, and there's no shame in it, and indeed, a number of states in their applications to sit for the bar have removed the question as to whether or not you have sought any mental health treatment. Meredith talked about how her parents distanced themselves and almost were in denial about her suicide attempt. And I think in large part, that's generational. And more and more in recent years, we're realizing that there is no shame in in going through trauma, in watching trauma, in being a survivor of vicarious trauma, 
that in order to be there for our clients, we have to be as healthy, not only in body, but also in, in mind as possible. To hear, you, to hear you use the word suicided as like the past tense of a verb is very difficult for me to hear. Okay. Um, it, it's, um, I'm, I, I'm, I have this visceral, I'm having this visceral reaction because it, it, it's easier for me to think of it, I don't know, as a noun or a participle maybe. I don't really know. But something like, like to commit suicide, commit is the verb, right? But as such power in in the way that you described it and um i'm 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 feeling not just i'm going back not just to the way i felt but how my family felt when they found out and um because the way that my my children found out was that they came and visited me um at a uh, drug rehab mental hospital silver hill here in connecticut and we were sitting on the front steps and I remember my, my then, uh, uh, my daughter who was eight, my older daughter was 18 and my younger daughter was 14 and they were sitting on the front steps and crying and like just holding me. And, and, um, I remember saying that I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I know you. And we were extraordinarily close, but, uh, I was living a double life for so long. Um, uh, so um, I, I would love to talk about what that is, is to kind of be in hiding, you know, to, to have to hide the truth about who we are or the pain we're going through or the, or the, um, or the, the things that we're doing to cope or to, to to, to not let people know and and um and and I don't think I ever had a stiff upper lip. I think people knew I was crazy, but I don't think they knew that I was in pain. Or if they did, they never talked to me about it. So uh, anybody want to share that kind of thing? Yeah, I'll jump I'll jump in here. Um first I wanna what Elizabeth mentioned about I didn't know that they took the requirement about the mental health status off of the bar admissions. That's really amazing um, yeah. because I remember. It's when, a growing trend. Good. That's so wonderful because I remember I was four years post suicide attempt when I applied for the bar in Georgia. And there was a huge section, huge on explain this. And I remember the shame of thinking, oh my gosh, I just went through law school. I did everything that was expected of me and I have to relive this and hope that they don't think I'm, a, you know, after all this, hope that they don't think I'm a threat to, you know, my clients. And um, so I just wanted to comment on that. But as far as um, the shame and the hiding, that was so very real to me. And it, it's only stopped being real recently, I think. I think when you grow up, with certain expectations of yourself or they're placed on you and you continue them when you have dark thoughts and you have dark feelings, when you become an addict, whatever it is, like you can't show anyone that there's just this feeling like I can't show them. They're going to be so disappointed in me or 
people won't understand. I won't be heard. I'll be stigmatized. I won't pass the bar exam. I mean, there's so many external forces that tell us, you know, maybe you don't want to share that. And so I love where we are right now as a society or, you know, no, I don't love where we are, but I love parts that we're talking about this more, that there's a community that's discussing it because I think that internal internal shame just feeds more. It feeds more addiction. It made me drink more. I know just thinking, why am I such a piece of shit? Let me just go drown out that feeling with <laughs> more alcohol and on and on it went until I became conscious enough to say, okay, I got to put a stop to this. But that is a gift to, to suddenly wake up and have the opportunity to say, okay, I think I'm, I'm at rock bottom, but not rock bottom without actually falling there and landing there. I mean, that's where I was five years ago and that's a great gift and not everyone gets it. So the ability to speak that, that darkness and talk about it is the gift now that, that people can reach out to you, Jeff, to you, Bob, and say how they're feeling and, and know that they're going to be met with love because I, I wasn't so sure of that back in, you know, 2000. On, on the other hand, there are some people who can't disclose and who know that their vulnerabilities will not be met with love. And those are people who are incarcerated. And to say the least, Jails and prisons are not therapeutic environments. And people who are suspected of being suicidal or who attempt suicide are treated in the worst and most perverse ways. Everything from being thrown into solitary confinement to being reprimanded and punished. For, for their suicide attempt. And on the other hand, many attorneys who suspect that their clients are, if you will, on the edge, are conflicted about what to do. Mm. Because if, for instance, a client is on pretrial release and it's divulged to the court that the client is um, is profoundly depressed, the, co- the, the court may very well rescind the bond and the client may have to go into custody. And so we, we for a thousand different reasons, we need to rethink our, our system of incarceration in this country And one of the aspects of that is we need to rethink how we handle people who are on the verge of suicide. I'm I'm glad that you you turned it at least a little bit into um, criminal justice system. Our our audience is, uh, is basically people involved in the justice system somewhat. Um, either as a um, defendant or a family member or an attorney or a judge, but also people who have um, substance abuse and mental health issues. Um, And maybe that's just because that's what informed my decision-making in in starting the ministry. Um, it's, It's been easier as i think meredith said it's been easier to have a pulpit now to be able to 
speak from. There's people listening. And Bob, certainly I wanna kind of I wanna I wanna um I wanna go there with you. But all of us are are talking about this from our own um our own social location, from the way that we come to it. An example is um uh, I've been on Meredith's podcast, but I've also been on her support group. And so she, uh, and she has uh, 40 or 50 people who come on the support group. I, I, I may be underestimating Meredith. I don't, uh, I, there were 40 or 50 people on that day. And, and they need someone to, who's going to talk to them truthfully. And they need to be able to express themselves. And so... What I, what I found when I went to Meredith's group, for example, is that the people who are there, because they obviously have been there often, they know one another, they know Meredith, it's, it's refreshingly candid. And they're talking about stuff that I never, I never talked about while I was going through the throes of it. So, um, so my question is, Bob, what, what's the, the, the message that you give to say a church who may or may not understand the universality of the message that, that you're going to give. Can you just walk into a church and say, by the way, I'm going to preach today on mental illness. And by the way, I'm someone who's mentally ill. I mean, what's, how do you do that? Right. I mean, there is that sense of trust of your audience. I mean, even within the congregation that you're going to be received a certain way and received positively, but there's always a risk that um, that people aren't going to take it take it well. Uh, even even today, that we've come so far in um, being willing to discuss suicide and 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 it's and it, all of its effects. But I've gone into <laughs> with fear and trepidation into the pulpit um, when I'm going to talk about mental health or when I talk about my own um, suicidal ideation or my struggles with depression and anxiety over the years the years and it's uh it's it is something that i, I kind of have to walk of faith to say this is going to be received well and and not uh worry whether it's going to touch everybody because there's you know not everybody struggles with mental illness and and not everybody has a um a suicide attempt or a suicidal ideation uh in their lives but most everybody knows somebody who has uh, had that experience, and, uh, and and so it's a real piece to I think all of our lives. And so to address it brings it brings it out, and and even if it's uh, you know not as well received, it's it's an, it's an, you know that risk of how it's going to be received is less important. That the folks trust me that I'm going to give them a message of hope that you know uh, that's that that it's particularly in speaking specifically about suicide that it, that it's an illness that our brain is is not well and um because of that our our brain chemistry changes uh in and around a suicide uh, attempt or ideation and 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 that's you know you can't there shouldn't be shame around a chemical reaction in your brain. I mean, it's no different than, than in the sense of breaking a bone or, or having a heart related issue. You know, it's, it's something that happens and it, it's sure an environmental reaction that's caught up in thinking 
because it's in our you know because it's a brain you know issue but but our our thinking isn't normal you know think about uh you get your foot stepped on all you're thinking about is the pain about your foot being stepped on and trying to stop that pain right uh, um and and that's that's what's the same place as we get into with with suicide that that's what the medical research has found is you, you know you, you have substantial changes in your brain chemistry which um substantially change how you think and what your options are and and what you consider doing and and the impact of that i think you know, for me for a long time and i never talked about you know I, there were two or three people who knew about my suicide uh, ideation and um that hour of my life or less than that but but that it took me 10 years to kind of feel okay about about just not making that decision you know I, there were days where i was like wow you know this is real you know i'm not i'm living but i'm not thriving um and and i wanted to be in a better place to thrive and it took a long time for me to get there and a lot of a lot of work on myself and with therapy and and spending time with people i've, I've read a lot of books on um recovery and mental illness and on mm -hmm. criminal justice issues and um including mine that's in the works and it's so hard to to characterize is it a memoir is it a how-to book mm -hmm. is it a but bob your book is really a workbook i mean yeah. you actually have workbook pages in it yeah so i'm just wondering when 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 um you give the section uh, this i don't know probably like 27 chapters or something like that you give a you give a section and then there's a workbook section do right. you ever get the feedback from the people who are who are filling in the workbook to actually find out what they're writing about themselves so i haven't had anybody say gee you know let me show you what i'm what i'm writing about but i have had people kind of thank me in that they said no i've been able to work through your as i would say it's a spiritual journal right so that you 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 it's tied in uh tied into a biblical theme uh, a verse and and then uh uh, a reflection really from my own experiences. And then that prompting question of, you know, variety of prompt of prompts that someone can write on. And in doing that, I've had people reflect back to me to saying, Hey, this has been really helpful for me to, to walk through it. I, one of the things I do and, and title of my book, courage to thrive is to tell people to slow down um with the book because because it is um uh, short reflections people can move through it quickly but that's not the point the point is to 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 allow it to percolate and to to reflect um in thinking and writing about um what where they are in their life part of the reason is is in doing that we can begin to change our thinking when we put pen to paper about and and be able to find these positive aspects of things and re begin to reshape our neural patterns and and not just be caught up with the negative aspects of what happened but also to look forward to to a positive place where and to, to throw my uh, uh you know subtitles where we can find uh, uh joy and hope and in, in things and so by that action of writing it's really critical so uh, M Meredith, 
the way that you and I became connected was that you saw me on the ritual podcast last year. I'm, 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 I'm proud to say I'm probably the fattest person who's ever been on the ritual podcast. <laughs> well, that's because he hasn't had me yet. So <laughs> rich, 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 rich roll is a, is an ultra marathoner and, 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 uh, and a vegan and a vegan, but he also had a similar situation, ex lawyer who were crashed and burned and he has his story. So, so, uh, we have a lot in common and I've been trying to, uh, I've been trying to hook Meredith and Rich up together because I really want her to be on his podcast. So if anyone in Rich's camp is watching this, <laughs> I'm, I'm pitching Meredith. But what, but what happened was um, uh, I read Meredith's book. Um, I, I can't remember if you sent me a copy first or not. I can't remember what the order was. But um, I started sending it into our, our folks who were in prison. And I really didn't know if I was sending it to them because I was trying to help Meredith or, or, or I was sending it to them because I was trying to help them. You know, there's always that kind of dual, dual piece. And I didn't really know what they were going to think because I was sending it to men. I didn't know if it was a woman's book. I couldn't kind of figure that out. And um, I'm glad you brought up uh, prisoners because I've sent it now to seven or eight people inside prison and Meredith has gotten responses, uh, some of them on, on Amazon and some of them I've sent her. And I think it's amazing that when people are sitting in, in, that, in the most difficult places of their lives, that somehow our work or our message is reaching out to them. You don't even know where it's reaching. It's just finding its water, finding its own path. So Meredith, now you're, yeah, you have a book out there. You have a podcast. You're reaching a lot of people, and it's 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 a message of hope. It's a message of life and life of life. It's life affirming, but you do it from being honest about your brokenness. And so, how does that work? I mean, do you find uh, do you find that people are are they connect to the work? Do they connect to you? I mean, how how does that work? I think they connect to to the honesty and to the story and to the fact that I'm I don't think I'm better than anyone like I'm I was one decision away from being right there in prison too we're all one decision away from being on the other side and it's just by the grace of God I didn't end up there honestly you know and and so I always try and share that as well like look, you may be here. I've been here. They're very similar. They're just separated by a choice or two. And that humans as a species, we all have darkness. And so I like to really bring that to the light and, and challenge people to see their darkness. Because when you look it in the eye, it's like classic Brene Brown. Shame cannot grow in, in the light. It grows in the dark. It grows in secrets and lies. And so the sooner we can just bring that out and talk openly, I mean, I was so open in my book about my struggles. And, and I also encourage people to look backward only for the purpose of learning where it came from. Because I think so much when we grow, grow up, become adults, we think, 
where did this come from? Why am I broken? This sucks. You know, I can't be fixed. And if you just kind of look in the rearview mirror at your experiences, your trauma, where you came from, where you got named and numbered and told you were worthless or, and you embodied it from a young age, like that builds, becomes part of your core belief system. And then the work you have, like Bob said, it's a workbook. I mean, it is, it is writing and figuring out how do I dismantle this, this negative belief I've been carrying. And I think someone um, in prison can get my book and say, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I have these beliefs and they can do that work and they can, I mean, everyone, every human <laughs> can do that work to dismantle these core beliefs that we've gathered throughout the years. And that's kind of the work that I do is say, hey, you know, you're going to have these bad thoughts, you're going to mess up, but how, how do you start to change that? And, and that's really the process I talk about. Well, you, you all have books. And I, I got on board with your book, Meredith, just before COVID. So you were actually on your book tour already. And I imagine what happened was that the book tour got canceled, right? It that did. was it. It did. I missed my Union Square Barnes & Noble date. Such a bummer. Oh yeah, I remember, I remember <laughs> that. So, so how how do you how do you get the message out now if if you can't be on the book tour? All, all all the rules are suspended. The plans have changed. What 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 are you doing? Well, I'm relying on you, Jeff. <laughs> you single handedly publicizing my book. You know, I think it's so interesting. I was having this conversation with my husband. I had this dream that it would be a New York Times bestseller and then I'd be off to the races, right? Like Oprah, Brene, we're all hanging out. I still dream that. I still believe it, by the way. Um, but it's that idea that it doesn't really matter how many, it doesn't really matter the number. It, it, it matters the quality of the people you impact. And so almost everyone that gets my book, they either love it or hate it because it's the kind of book where you're ready to deal or you're not ready to deal. And like, you will not like this book if you want sugar-coated Rachel Hollis stuff. Like, you're not going to like it. It's not that book. But the people that do like it are the ones that are ready to change. And then they tell their friends and then they, and like, I've stopped publicizing it. I'm just, there's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. It's been out almost a year. Everyone knows in the book world, if you didn't make it in the first two weeks, you're host. So whatever. Um, but it's about how can I impact one-on-one? And so that's, that's where I focus now. How can I work with my clients and in people I meet and, and try and connect? Because at the core level, I would rather be doing that than reaching a million people on a surface level. Nice. And Elizabeth, you're, you're kind of in the same place. But I've, I've spoken to Francesca. Um, and uh, um, your uh, your co-editor, and uh, she's actually uh, joined us on our uh, White Collar Support Group on Monday nights. Yes, she I, had a wonderful time. Yeah, because uh, she's just justice impacted. If you like that term, justice impacted. And um, and but the planning that goes into editing a book about uh, about suicide or suicide attempts. And then having to make the connections and the relationships with people who are going to make submissions and somehow you have to knit it together into something that's cohesive, something that um, I can't even imagine what that process is about. So uh, want to talk to us a little bit about what goes into no. it. This, this is not the first time you've done it either. 
No, this is this is my third time at the rodeo. Yeah. This is the third book that I've edited and the third book that the ABA is publishing. That being said, because of the fact that ABA is publishing it, because the first two books representing people with mental disabilities and uh, uh, a practical guide for criminal defense lawyers and representing people with autism spectrum disorders, a practical guide for criminal defense lawyers were pitched at criminal defense lawyers. And this third book is intended for all players within the legal system. I, I, I don't have any aspirations to do that book signing at Union, at Barnes and Noble Union Square. Um, that being said, I've, I've made it a mission to, um, to train other criminal defense lawyers in how to, as, as effectively as possible, represent this particular population. In terms of binding this, this book on suicide into a unified whole, I think it's going to be relatively easy because Francesca and I have spent a good deal of time coming up with a table of contents that encompasses not only a diversity of topics, but a diversity of voices. And we're both writing the introduction and we're both writing introductions to individual chapters. So although the individual chapters will be done by different authors, there will be a unified voice. The chapter I'm submitting um, is, is the chapter that, that starts out with, in the minutes leading up to my suicide attempt. Then it goes into the backstory. And then it ends with me in the same chair where, where the chapter started, where I, uh, I take the vial of pills. But the story in between, the story I'm telling that's leading up to it, is really about grandiosity and um, kind of an indifference for my health and the health of my family and the health of, of the people around me. Um, I was just so sick or self-involved in a, I mean, there's the behavioral side and then as Bob said, the chemical side, and it all kind of came together in, in, in a, in a picture of, of someone I don't think I would like very much right now. No, but certainly who, if, if they came to me, I would be, I would want to help them. I would have tools to be able to help them, but I, I, I would recognize, I recognize things in myself that are, that are painful, but they're just, they're, 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 I can't believe that was me. I guess that's really what it is. I can't believe that was me. Um, we're, we're closing on, uh, on our time. Um, I want to make sure we just go around and offer you um, all a, uh, a chance to give a takeaway or two. What's the, what's, the, what, what's, what's the message that you'd like people to leave this with? Um, 
and then give us some um, information about um, how people can contact you and where they can uh, find your book. Definitely hold up a copy if you want. If not, I'll hold up copies of your books. But um, you know, let, let, let's make sure people understand exactly what, um, what the takeaways are. Bob, why don't, why don't we start with you? I would say probably hang a lot on the idea of self-forgiveness. Um, I think spiritual growth starts with that understanding that, um, that we have to forgive ourselves before we can forgive others. We have to forgive ourselves before we can uh, really love others. Um, I, I, I talk about in my book, Courage to Thrive, Finding Joy and Hope in the Midst of Mental Health Struggles. I talk about that in, in terms of the commandment that Jesus gave uh, to that, that we should love God and, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, there have been days in my life when I've gotten up and I have, you know, woken up in the morning and kind of, you know, look at myself in the mirror and said, there's not a whole lot of self-love there, right? How am I going to love somebody else when I, frankly, Jesus, don't love myself. And I think, so I think that there's that, that one straight takeaway that we can all have for, for me and my, in my book and my work is, is to come to that place of self-forgiveness. And once we can see ourselves as people that need forgiveness and, and need our own forgiveness, we can begin to really come to that place where, as, as I talk about, to, to develop that courage to thrive and to be able to develop that place where we can, we can step out and not just kind of make our way through life, but to find life to be a beautiful, lovely, and joyful place filled with, with hope. Um, and so that, that's the takeaway that I have. Uh, my website, robertdflanagan.com, can, uh, you can find all of my uh, information there. And, uh, and, my, and my book is available on Amazon and all the other, other usual uh, online sorts. Wonderful. Thank you, Bob. Meredith. Yes. Um, so self-forgiveness, I, I would say self-awareness is, is sort of um, where I kind of come to. And I don't know if you need to forgive yourself first or become aware first, because sometimes if we're, we become aware first, you may think there's no way I could forgive myself. <laughs> so it's kind of chicken or the egg argument. But for me, learning the truth about ourself, our situation, that is hard pulling our head out of the sand and, and looking in the mirror, looking in our lives, seeing the mess. It's like when you're in a tremendous amount of debt and you put it all in a spreadsheet and then you think, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to get out of this? But that's exactly how you do it. You have to see what you're dealing with before you can do anything. And, and so I like to talk about, and I guess I'll pull my book out here, the year of nonsense. I, <laughs> I talk about... Um, about self-awareness and, and learning where my, you know, who I am, even that dark side and, and what I'm struggling with, because unless you see the truth, you, there's nowhere for you to go. You don't know where you're going. You have no true North. And, and so that would be my takeaway. And you can follow me everywhere at swim bike mom. And my book is available at um, the bookstores and Amazon. And um, yeah, thanks Jeff. Thank you, Meredith. Elizabeth. Thank you. 
I fear not only for our country, but I fear for our world because of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just talking about the physical health ramifications. I'm not just talking about the economic devastation. I'm talking about the anxiety and the depression and the trauma that is impacting billions of people throughout this world, not only on a small level, but on a great level. And I fear that we as a society are going to be dealing with the impact of the pandemic for probably decades after its conclusion. And during that time, the criminal justice system, I fear, is also going to be dealing with people who are suffering from anxiety, depression, and trauma caused by the pandemic. And we know that when people are in the throes of, of those conditions, they make bad decisions they take actions that they otherwise would not have. And unfortunately, for too long, we have used our criminal justice system as a place to deal with what is a public health issue. So in light of that, I, I hope that criminal defense lawyers and prosecutors and judges and all the stakeholders in the system will think of sensible, responsible ways to mitigate that damage and, when appropriate, to divert those people out of the criminal justice system and give them the help that they so profoundly need. And Elizabeth, how would people get in touch with you? My email is zealousadvocacy at AOL.com. And my Twitter handle is at mentalhealthesq. And I have a website, www.elizabethkellylaw.com. That's Elizabeth with a Z and K-E-L-L-E-Y is how you spell my last name. And you don't have to be a lawyer to to buy and read and hopefully hopefully benefit from my two books. You can go on the ABA publishing website, which is shockaba.org. Thank you. We'll we'll have links um, and details and and, um, and photos of the covers of all of your books on our uh, on our website. And um, since Meredith taught me how to do show notes. I, it'll, it'll, it'll all be there. Um, and uh, for anyone who's listening, who's having a, uh, a crisis or knows someone in crisis right now, um, um, if it's a deep enough crisis, um, obviously um, dial 911 um, um, or reach out to someone who's very close to you. But um, you can also reach out to any of us because I know that, uh, I know that, um, that, we are all uh, open and willing to uh, um, take calls or emails or tweets or whatever, and uh, we'll respond. But there's a, there's a lot of help out there, a lot of people who, uh, who are doing a lot of good. And, uh, and uh, brothers and sisters, you are not alone. We've been through it, and, um, 
and uh, no one has to go through it alone. So thank you all for uh, being with me today. And uh, I hope that uh, this spurs a lot of conversation and, and a lot of thoughts and uh, maybe some networking between you. And thank you all. And, uh, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Jeff. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.